Hi, I'm Timothy Fitz. It's like you go into this like different mode. It's it's like Mr. Rogers taking the jacket off. Yeah, Hi. you also got a lot quieter. Hi. But anyway, that's fine. We can do that. So so that's the beginning. That's our intro. You're Timothy Fitz. I'm Jeff Lindsay. And this is Systems, Systems Live. Live. Yeah. Um, that worked out pretty well. But okay, so um, keep telling yourself that coffee's working really well. So megalith, not monolith. Don't even bring that. A lot of people uh, accidentally call it monolith. Um, they might not even be aware because you say monolith more than megalith. Megalith is a weird. I've never word. said megalith before. Megalith. So, um, just kind of the story of discovering that um, word. Um, I was kind of thinking about the, the the project and all the pieces coming together, and there was this idea of um, them being separate, uh, and then at some point collapsing them down into one kind of monolithic thing. And it turns out there is the opposite of monolith, which is polylith. Um, and then the sort of um, generalized version of both of those is a megalith. So a megalith could be a monolith or a polylith, um, but it has the same kind of properties of a, mo- of a monolith. So a lot of the same connotations that you have with monolith apply to megalith. So what is a lith? I don't know stone structure. I mean, it's all kind of just abstract because, like, the literal meaning is, like, stone st- structure. Like, it's not... So, like, Stonehenge would be a polylith? Uh, or the East, so. Easter... Uh, as far as I know. Heads. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you're making a, a, a mega large lith stone. You're making a large stone structure. <laughs> so that's what megalith is. Yeah, it's a large stone structure. Everybody's been asking me, what is megalith? I'm not able to explain it. It's actually very simple. It's a very large stone structure. So this is why you're this is why you're looking for uh, uh, more of a house with a backyard is because you, you run out of space yeah, in I your apartment. This, yeah, big large stone structure in my backyard. Okay, so that's it's not very true. Austin. Yeah, so that's not true at all. Um, and part of the the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was because it's actually a really hard thing to explain and kind of everybody uh, expects this very kind of consumable um, description Uh, and at the same time I'm also very bad at explaining things that are new that I haven't like spent a year trying to figure out the best way to explain it. Well right and the beauty of this podcast is that I'm going to try and explain Megalith knowing only slightly more than the listeners Um, but also having known you forever. Um, and so I see, like, part of your struggle to define it is that on one hand, like, it's it's a, a very new and high-level concept, and so it's hard to put into a consumable form. But on the other hand, it's a 10-year project with, like, a direction more than an end goal state known. Right. I mean, it started as I've been doing and, – and I wanted to get to the story because really it's a story of my kind of development and all the stuff, all the projects that I've worked on because it's really about all of that that body of work. So this um, is Megalith colon the Jeff Lindsay story. Yeah. I mean somebody suggested something like that. I think Joel's <laughs> – A like lifetime original. Jeff's, Jeff's – uh, uh, Jeff University or something like that. It was it was weird because part of the process, part of the idea of Megalith is that I've been working on projects for um, projects that kind of fall under this umbrella f- since like 2005, and um, there's it's kind of this 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 thing that I'm compelled to do, and there's a way I think about it and a direction a place I'm trying to get to, 
And the only way I can get help so far has been with individual projects because that's a tangible thing. I can be like, here's a project, and then maybe some people get it, like Doku or something like that. People will be like, oh, I get it. Um, and then they contribute to that. But nobody really helps me with the kind of like the overall, you know, the, the major arc, right? And so that was really the f- inspiration for just like saying, oh, I'll just call that kind of career arc. It's not, I mean, career. I don't get paid to do most of these projects. Um, but this work that I'm doing, um, give it a name. And um, what, what the, the trouble with that is that there's, um, you know, 10, 10 or more years of like lots of deep knowledge that goes into all of this stuff and all these different projects, and it's so kind of wide and huge that to, to put that into, and then boil down to a single name, and then you have to, like, give that, you know, megalith and now describe it, right? So um, the, what, I, what I'm trying to achieve is to um, externalize my thought process and the way I work on these projects uh, and help kind of both... Um, share the knowledge that I've gotten as well as the way I think about um, designing software, writing software, building software, um, getting software out there, getting people to use it. All the stuff, basically all the knowledge that I have in doing all these projects and get other and, and share that knowledge and then get people to um, use that to contribute to more than just individual projects. So for example, um, you know, I've I have a bunch of projects on GitHub. Um, I have a huge backlog of projects, right? At, at home, I have a bunch of post-it notes that um, were projects that were kind of under the, the Glider Labs uh, um, umbrella that there's about 30 post-its. And about half of them exist uh, in some form on GitHub. And about half of those um, people know about. Uh, and then there's a bunch of projects that I don't have written down post-its for. Um, and so, you know, not all these projects are, like, going to be huge um, game changers, right? But uh, a, a couple of them are, and, but the point is, together they are, um, you know, significant game changers. Right, so, so that's one of the problems with explaining Megalith, is that people expect... Um, like they they want you to say something like oh it's Jeff Lindsay's competitor to Kubernetes it has this website here's how you install it um, and while it may end up being something like that um, or that may be a component of it uh, the way that you get there is not by top down here's yeah. all of the things here's a basic version of them they don't do enough live with it it's bottom up here's one vertical slice and it works and it's great. And here's another vertical slice, and they work together, but they work with other things, too. It's an open ecosystem right. by default instead of a closed ecosystem that slowly opens up. Right. So that's part of prob- one of the other problems is um, part of my process, and, and, and a couple people know about this process, and we've mentioned it on this show a few times, idealized design. And this, this is a thought process um, uh, that isn't, uh, some people kind of use it um, implicitly. Uh, it, it's kind of built into a lot of new projects when you start something new. It's mostly it's most useful when you have an existing system and you're trying to, um, you know, actually make a significant improvement. Um, but the idea is is basically, you know, 
given everything that you have now that exists, that you've implemented, whatever it is, um, everything that you have, uh, ignore, throw it all away and, and reimagine what your ideal situation is. And it's not, and it's within some constraints. It's like, it needs to be technically feasible now and, and operationally viable, you know, depending on whether you're talking about like an organization or a product or a project or whatever. But, um, just thinking about like what does it what does it look like? What are the properties of that system? You think about the problems that you've solved so far, um, and you just kind of list uh, you know either manifestations of, of ways to solve those or just that you want that problem solved. And the the, class, the first example of this was the Bell Labs story um, that we we talked about a, a long time ago with the telephone system, and um, we actually applied this process at Twilio on the platform team that I helped start. And that's where a lot of, um, it's, it's kind of funny, like uh, at Bell Labs, when they did this in like 1952, um, they had kind of plateaued in terms of, I mean, they were still doing great inventions and, and um, you know, obviously there's a whole bunch of interesting things that came out of, of Bell Labs uh, after that point. But the, the, one of the main directors had read something that the major um, uh, the major developments that came out of Bell Labs, the top three or whatever, is like coax coax uh, is like multiplexing. Is a couple of like handful of things, but they were all things that were done like twenty years before. So they're like, well, what have you guys been doing? Um, and his insight, which is a very systems way of looking at, it, is you've been, you know, now that we've developed a system, you've all specialized and are working on like these individual subsystems without thinking of the bigger picture. And so, um, so there's this whole dramatic thing where he's like, the American, you know, the American telephone system is destroyed. Now let's reimagine it. What does it look like? And um, this is like a closed door meeting, and there were people who were like, wait, what? It's it's destroyed? And he said, no, 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 no. I, but, but figuratively, imagine that it's destroyed. Yeah. Imagine we have to rebuild yeah. it from scratch. And so they broke into teams and kind of reimagined each uh, subsystem at a high level. And they didn't have to implement it then. They were just kind of imagining it. It's like, and uh, from that, they, you know, from this sort of, it's kind of like a brainstorm. Um, uh, it's a brainstorm given, you know, if you were to start over, what would it look like? And um, I think a lot of software people kind of find that taboo because there's this sort of like you shouldn't you know rewrite systems and stuff like that you should always evolve it and that's that's um this isn't saying that you shouldn't do that it's saying separately on a piece of paper what does the idea look like because you are going to evolve your system but you need to know where you're going right but and that's a problem a lot of people miss that with evolutionary design is that they're only ever looking one evolutionary step forward right. they're solving problems as they come they're and thinking you, fairly you short term right you get stuck in a local maxima where yeah. you're like hey we tried to evolve in every direction from here and it didn't go great well it's like yeah because you need to look way higher level and way further out and then head off in a new direction so so this is one of the core ways that i operate that's kind of behind a lot of the projects i think this is the way that world should be um and uh, and then I think how how do I get there? Um, what what pieces do I need? And so in um, if you go back to like 2005, and this is a it, it's kind of funny because I did a lot of research because I was planning to kind of explain all this in 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 um, either a talk or something like that. Um, but I actually went back to kind of like what was 2005 like. Um, 
and it's kind of funny because 2005 was a really kind of interesting time. This is like is right at the beginning of the whole Web 2.0 thing. Um, uh, in 2005, Gmail was still invite only. Google Maps just came out. Um, right around then, Rails and Django just came out, um, which you know there were frameworks before, but nothing as like transformative as those those things. Um, 2004 is when Web 2.0 was kind of coming out. Um, 37 Signals released Basecamp in 2004. People, the whole thing about software as a service and Creative Commons and Wikipedia and all this new stuff was just a couple years before then. Um, there was no GitHub. There was no EC2 for another year or so. Um, Facebook was still private. Like, all this crazy stuff. Totally different time. Um, but all these things were about to change. Like the next year, uh, 2006, the Intel MacBook came out, and that's when everybody got a MacBook. Um, and uh, Flickr was coming out, and that was, you know, that was sort of um, to me the the that was when we started um, Cal's book, uh, building scalable websites, was based on what they learned building Flickr, which was one of the first sort of like well-known web 2.0 things that was also developed in a very modern way and it's kind of one of the first kind of devops um examples that was a, that was a weird book for me um like it could have been transformative if i had read it uh a year before mm-hmm. and instead it was like conformative like everything that they did imview had independently rederived we had really similar stacks yeah uh, but that's kind of the whatnot. point like everybody um, was kind of coming to this new way of doing things yeah, it was just it was just interesting how everyone was sort of co-evolving in the same way. And Flickr Flickr was actually like like sort of early to continuous deployment as well. They didn't do it with the rigor or call it that, um, but they were deploying like you know thirty times a day in like oh, four or five, like real real early, like right at the start of the company. So given this this context, and really we we kind of felt at the heart of it because of Dev House. Some of the people that are listening are um, familiar with the super happy Dev House event. Um, and those days were really interesting because you had people from uh, WordPress and Flickr and Dig and Wikipedia and Apple and Yelp and, you know, OpenDNS and Firefox and NASA, you know, all the kind of new cool companies, people from them were actually coming to DevHouse and sharing ideas in a very sort of casual, uh, informal way. Uh, and we we're sort of collectively, you know, got, getting best practices um, and seeing what, you know, a lot of the latest, you know, what are the cutting edge um, things that people are doing. Um, and DevHouse is like all kinds of really interesting things that came out of it. Um, but that's kind of what I spent a lot of time doing. It was also uh, organizing those events and doing a lot of random projects. And those random projects, web projects, inspired by all the crazy conversations that we're having, um, turned into, hey, I need to like make version control for these. And so I started DevJa Vu. And um, that was a startup is pre-GitHub, like, here's a project site, here's SVN, here's a wiki. Um, it, was, it was surprisingly, like, GitHub without the social aspect. It was, it was yeah, one. Because, and that, like, back, it's a little hard to understand, but back then, one click and you immediately have subversion and issue tracker and a wiki was not a thing. Right. It was actually a trend that um, I think Adam's listening. Um, we call it peanut butterization because at the first dev house, David Weekly had built um, PB Wiki, which is now PB Works. And it was one of the first sort of like, you know, software as a service uh, wiki service. Um, and 
you know, until that you had wikis, but they're all open source and you had to like find a host and like follow the instructions and they're all open source. And it's like, how does this work? And then you got to configure stuff. And here you could just go to a website, put in a name and your email and hit a button. And now you have a wiki. And that had never, um, that didn't really exist before um, for that kind of thing. And so it took off really quickly. And then a lot of people started in, in our group started making other things. Like I made one for forums and it just started this whole like idea, like within this group is also happening at a grander scale, just people doing software as a service. But um, so yeah, the idea was track, you know, as a service was basically what it was. Um, and I had some really cool people using it. Like um, we had a deal with Engineard and, um, Ezra, the author of Merb that got merged into Rails, was using it for Merb. Um, Dot Cloud uh, creators of Docker were using it back then before they had even figured out what they were. And um, but the the most valuable thing that came out of DevJavu was webhooks, and this is kind of where um, I got the first sort of like idea of what this I, I, ideal is, and it is what I spent like the next few years. Um, talking about, I gave like these random talks at places and talking about like first the idea of webhooks is like, oh, it's really simple. It's just HTTP callbacks, right? Um, what does that mean? Like, how do you implement that? What are the, but like, I was more interested in the, the greater ramifications. And so I later reframed it as like the evented web, right? Um, we have APIs, but if we want to actually have, if we want to wire these things together, um, you need to have them kind of trigger each other. Um, as opposed to like at the time you, we talked about like mashups, where it's like you you would have an you would aggregate APIs. You had to create a third thing. You couldn't wire two things together. Um, GitHub was really small at the time, and um, that you know they just started a couple years after DevJavu, which is why I eventually shut it down because I wasn't interested. GitHub was doing a really good job, um, but they took the webhooks idea to heart and are one of the best examples of like webhooks that people use on a daily basis, even if they don't realize it, a lot of the integrations and stuff that um, make GitHub so great are because of webhooks. Um, and uh, so it, it wasn't just about those integrations. Like the whole idea was uh, I wanted to make the web more programmable, right? This idea that um, programmer literacy is uh, is an important thing. Society, you know, it's a great, and I'm, I'm really happy to see that, like, there are a lot of, like, every, you know, anybody, everybody can learn how to code now. Um, it's really accessible. Um, but, uh, and then you have all these great APIs and resources, things like Twilio and all these things that are, like, really accessible. Um, like, before Twilio, it's like, we're trying to figure out ways how to build something that would do SMS, and for a while, we were like, well, Twitter is based on SMS, so we would just kind of reuse the Twitter API as a, like an SMS gateway. Um, and then, you know, Twilio came out and it's like, oh, I'll just use Twilio, right? And so you've, we've got all these cool like toys um, to, you know, do phone stuff or, you know, there's a lot of like science as a service kind of things now. You can do like DNA sequencing, all kinds of crazy stuff like as a service through an API. Yeah, like another another thing we were really looking into was uh, server-side JavaScript. So pre-Node, 
um, where the idea would be sort of like a paste bin, right. tw- you know, 20, yeah. 30 lines of glue JavaScript code, and then just well, like a, a trivial way to host it and have it work yeah. as an API. So, I mean, this is all part of a system, right? Webhooks is one piece of it. That's how you trigger it. And then what's on the other end? And so a lot of people came up with various systems, kind of if this, then that ways of like, oh, well, you know, it'll, and I, I, I figured that the most expressive bang for buck thing was to just be like, just write little scripts. Um, and so PHP hosting was accessible. And so a lot of people just did that, but I wanted it to be even easier. Um, so I started a project called uh, Scriptlets. And the whole idea there was, it was like a paste bin site, but the code that you save would actually run. And this sort of thing is actually pretty, uh, is not uncommon now. There's actually things, that, probably one of the best examples is by the Auth0 guys. They have a thing called WebTask. Um, and then there's a couple other, um, but there's been a handful of these that have kind of started as a, like AppJet, I remember was one, mm-hmm. um, it started as a company and, and flopped and there's all these great things. And this comes back to one of the other philosophical ideas is that there's a lot of great technology, uh, services that should exist because that'll allow, open up all these possibilities, but because there isn't a market to sustain them, those technologies and services will not. It's not even like there's a market, but there's no valid monetization strategy. Right. You know, if I, if I, mean, I use Pastebin, I don't want to pay them any money. I see an ad that yeah, works. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of like it's uh, the, the market for a free service is, is uh, you know, there's not a lot of money in that, right? So it's like, especially well, it, for VC-funded startups. Yeah, like, yeah there's no way for, to get VC funding. Yeah. But there's also like, I, it, it would be worth 10 cents to me, but there's no easy way to charge you 10 cents right now. Sure. And, and I actually remember looking into things like on a project called DevPay and all these ways of trying to think about, uh, which I, you know, I think they use that in Amazon for, for stuff, but um, the, or the idea and the name. But uh, so, so the idea was to make, uh, make the web more programmable for anybody, not just like a startup. Like I was an individual. I want to improve my productivity. I'm using these two apps. I'm using a more modern example is maybe like Asana and – um, I'm trying to remember and another project management tool. Let's say, let's say GitHub. Um, or actually, what was the one I was trying to do recently? Um, yeah, you just want to do workflow automation. Yeah, and and there's a and there's a lot of people that are doing these kind of integrations. Uh, uh, you know, if this then that, and and all this stuff. But the idea was if you laid the infrastructure. Um, and you had webhooks and you had like ways to uh, modify those requests and, and make other requests and make that really easy, um, you could build stuff on top of that that would make it more accessible and more look like if this, then that. Um, but the problem is there isn't as much of a, of a business. Th- I, I'm, I'm still not even sure what the business model is for if this, then that. And it would be a real shame if at some point, I mean, they'll f- probably figure it out. Um, but just imagine it would be a shame if, if this, then that had shut down at some point. Right. Right. Um, and so that to me was a real problem. And eventually that was something that I was working on. I eventually called it auto sustainable services, um, was basically like, how can you have, um, how can you build something that just exists on the internet and not have to worry about starting a company for it to exist? 
Yeah, and, and sort of this comes back to Megalith is like when someone asks you what Megalith is, they expect it to fit into one of the current boxes. Is it an open source project? Is it a venture back startup? Is it a personal company? And like part of it is the idea of how do you build open source services that live and fund themselves and it just works because that's an absolutely critical piece of the infrastructure moving forward. Um, services are really, really important and awesome, and open source is really, really important and awesome. And right now, the two don't work together very well. Yeah, and that, that's actually so. Uh, so future, I think, uh, is talking about you know bigger organizations. They'll they'll have a main. So, and that, actually, this was a, a term that we used a lot. One of my mentors uh, would talk. He's an investor. He would talk a lot about um, is it a is it a vitamin or a pill. Mm-hmm. Um, or another way of talking about it is it a feature or a product, right? Um, you need a product to build a company around. A feature isn't enough to build a product around. But if there is a product, you know, and a company that has a s- sustainable system, it could be a feature of that. Yeah, or, or is this something that, that customers want or is it something that customers need? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because a lot of people will be like, oh, that's so cool. I really, really want that. And that doesn't matter. Yep. You know, uh, you know, I really, really want a Ferrari, but I'm not spending all my money on a Ferrari. I'm spending my money on a house because I need a house. Yeah. Um, there's another great example. Um, and you know, all these, there's a lot of other things, other factors. Well, so, but- so future was making like, I think an even more interesting specific point, which is that, um, what happens practically speaking is that these venture back companies find the one thing that monetizes really well, um, and make a bunch of money off of that. And then they build a bunch of services around it that just sort of give them a halo effect of like, I like Gist. Gist mm-hmm. is cool. Yeah. GitHub does Gist. I don't have to pay anything for it. No one does. Um, but because of it, I like GitHub and I will probably use their services more. And so GitHub can build some services that are, uh, I don't know if they're loss leaders. I doubt GitHub is even really looking at those numbers. They're, they're simple and they're easy and that's fine because for GitHub, it doesn't matter. They're making enough money otherwise. They're also crazy venture backed. So in, yeah. in some sense, uh, 20 years down the road when they run out of venture money and they, they are owned by some evil uh, greedy um, uh, M&A company that decides to, to, to pull a... <sighs> I'm just really sad about SourceForge, I guess. <laughs> they try to pull a SourceForge and all of a sudden, uh, every time you read a gist, you have to watch a 30-second a, a ad. Um, this could happen. You know, that's a dystopian future. Yeah, or like uh, Google's being mentioned um, and they do try out wacky ideas, but then a lot of the time they'll shut them down, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, but a lot of the time it's, uh, but none of these are models that you can use, you know, yeah, you, you like, can't say, I want to build uh, the, if this, then that. So I'm going to go off and build GitHub first to yeah. pay for it. Right. Or I'm going to go work at Google so I can go work on this thing. It has nothing to do with Google. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, Google some funds people it. Yeah. can, can kind of do that, but, <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> but you know, you kind of have to have some kind of value proposition for them um, that isn't this thing that doesn't make money. Um, so anyway, like I, I think that we should, like, it's feel, it's always like, the reason why I think these ways is that it's always like we're so close, right? It's like, I can see it, like, it's almost there, but there's a couple of these bottlenecks to have, like, more programmable world or to have this kind of, you know, being able to, to do certain things um, with the infrastructure that we have as an individual, not as a company that has a huge budget, um, but, you know, 
it's and to me that's important because that's that's what um, uh, one of the important things for uh, I think in terms of like education is like um, motivation and inspiration. And one of the coolest things um, that happens when you're learning to program is uh, you get you know some kind of instant feedback of like oh my god that's so awesome. Um, and, and back in the day, it was just like getting it to like, you know, print something and you're like, I just got the computer to do something. Oh my God. And then you're hooked. Um, you know, this device that I'm able to play games on, like I just made it do something exactly what I wanted. Um, and, and it's kind of the same feeling, uh, it's it, different, but on a grander scale with things like Twilio, it's like, say you're learning to program. It's like you use this Twilio library that use the Twilio service. It's like, whoa, I just made everybody in the, in everybody's phone ring. Um, and then I had a computer say something. Yeah. Right? And then you just start getting all these ideas of like, well, if I could do this and, you know, and, and sometimes these might turn into practical like businesses or something like that, but it doesn't matter. It's like, it's just tools for solving problems. Maybe you figure out how to solve like a problem uh, with like, you know, maybe you're a parent and your kids are going to school and there's like a huge problem with like the efficiency of like homework um, assignments or something. And you're like, oh, I could just rig this up and like, boom, and you just solve a problem, um, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like I still, I still get that. Like, Ooh, what could I do with it? Like when the Amazon button came out and yeah. I was like, Oh, I could have a button that just orders something from the internet. Like what? Okay. What, where do I put these? Yeah. What do I want? And now of course it's locked down and it's, it's a, uh, you know, tied to a specific subset of products or like when light bulbs came out that you could, you could remotely change the, the hue of, uh, oh, immediately yeah. in my head, I'm just like, that's the coolest thing ever. I want to play with it. I don't own that. Home automation, because... modern home automation is really a cool thing. That was one, another example of just like, it's, it's like, it's not actually that useful in, no, in no, practical not. terms, but it's so cool. Like yeah, you just want to play a, with a, it. It's a great gateway. You want to affect your world around you. Right. Code. And, and as things are getting like, people talk about the internet of things and all this stuff and yeah that's interesting and yeah there's interesting technical problems and all this stuff but the fact that these things are becoming like programmable it's like you're able to repurpose things and so to me it's uh you know that's kind of gets at the whole hacker uh ethos you know it's just like you know making things and trying things and like doing cool things and repurposing things using this to do this and oh that's really cool and clever and um you know, I just think that's a really great uh, way to look at the world and to inspire more people to do that. Um, so anyway, a lot of this is kind of like about me and being like, man, if, if I was a kid and, you know, I had this or whatever, that would be amazing. Or if it's 2005 and I'm having all these cool ideas, because as you would hanging out at Dev House, you'd have like crazy random ideas of like, oh, that'd be really cool. Maybe it's a joke or maybe it's actually useful. Maybe it turns into a company. Um, but the fact that you can just kind of like do it and get that instant feedback right right now there's too many hoops to jump through even just for like local development environments so there's just like a huge systemic problem with a lot of different things in terms of tooling and infrastructure and um so this gets to like eventually uh because of kind of the webhooks way of thinking i ended up working at twilio and that was the first company that I, like, big startup that I worked at. I worked with uh, NASA, but it was, like, a small kind of startup thing. We were working on, like, proto OpenStack. Um, and I was working with a lot of, like, people that were prototyping startup ideas. So it was all really small type stuff. Twilio was 10 people, but it quickly grew into 100 and 200. Now it's this big thing. Um, but it was the first time I had to deal with um, the actual problems that most startups deal with, which is 
running a distributed, highly available system. And it's a very different, like there's a lot of commonalities um, with, in terms of like thinking about systems, in terms of like system architecture and all this stuff, but it's a very different um, set of problems. Um, first of all, they're problems that people care about, right? They're problems that, um, you know, making things more uh, highly available, more fault tolerant, like these are things that people are willing to pay money for. Whereas webhooks and like making things more programmable, it's like there's no market for that. Like, um, but that was one of the things that bothered me is that there's these two levels. There's this sort of ecosystem level, the macro level stuff, and there's nobody that's really incentivized to really think about improving that at a systemic level. And right? it's, it's funny too because we've seen time and time again startups um, where the API is is a side effect or is an also ran or is an engineer pushed it said, hey, we should have an API, and then the the apps that consume it end up being super important to the business, yeah. um, but almost never is a business person sitting down and going, oh, like the API is a core part of our, our value proposition, how we're going to make money, etc. Um, and so and so it's just not getting the resources ever. It's not getting the love or the attention. Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's two two parts to that. One is, and another great example is just AWS. Like I remember when AWS stuff start, started coming out, com, coming out, they were a, they were still a book retailer um and there's some like one one of the guys behind aws is like we're we're like a bookstore that's selling crack out of the back door um because that's what was getting a lot of growth and and it's still not like their biggest money make but it's you know the profit separated. margins are yeah. so much better though yeah. so it is it is probably so going to be the dominant part business. of that that business um and uh but anyway yeah so there's people that will that are incentivized to improve their product Twilio is incentivized to make Twilio better. Amazon's incentivized to make Amazon better. But who's incentivized to make them all work together better and allow you to do more things with them together, right? There's nobody that's really incentivized to do that. Right, and there's the big fear, like, with interoperability, become you become a commodity and you become exchangeable with something else. That's not necessarily true, and that's not strictly true, but the fear there stops people from going down that route a lot of the time. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is just there, there isn't money, you know. You want to build your market, your customer base, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... So it's interesting. I think if it's, then that is, you know, kind of one of the closest things where it's kind of trying to be this glue, but it's highly dependent on all these other parties, like very platformy. Um, yeah. Problem. Bruce, Bruce Schneier described this as like uh, serfdom. So we're, we're, we're in a world where um, Google is a, a city state and Apple is a city state. And if you live within their walls, you you have great benefits. Everything works together. You know, I have I have an Android phone because I sign into Google and everything works, and that's worth it to me. Uh, even though iOS has better apps in many cases, um, but its interoperability with Google is crap. Uh, so, like uh, in that sense, if I continue to just use Google products and I stay within their walls, I get this great benefit. Uh, versus if you're if you're in Apple world and you're like, okay, I'm going to live with iCloud. I'm going to live with their crap because uh, they're really bad at web services. Um, but it all interoperates, and now I'm, I'm uh, you know, an Apple Surf instead of a, a Google Surf. And you can switch from one to the other, but the switching cost is high. Mm-hmm. And living in a mixed world is almost impossible. It's very painful, and everything has bugs, and, and no one uh, of these companies really wants to support you. So we're in this weird world where and, – and if you look at a city-state world, one of the big problems was inner city-state commerce. Um, you know, if you have a, if you have a tariff – 
because you're trying to export something from Austin and sell it to Dallas, that is not a good economy. Uh, it's not a good economy. You're, you're going to suffer from a, a lack of innovation and a lack of idea sharing. And that's where we are right now. Like we're, we're in like super, super early days of the web. Again, even though we had open standards before, like we regressed a lot uh, when we went mobile and, and when we went sort of web 2.0 and services software. But so putting, putting a, so now kind of, we'll, we'll come back to that sort of macro ecosystem level. And, Cause that's kind of what happened with my story is I spent, like so many years thinking about building tools, prototypes, thinking about auto sustainable services and all these things that like nobody really wants. I mean, it's a great, like if you can tell them like, what is the benefit and, and you, you get them sold on the idea of like, Oh, I want things to be more programmable. I want to be able to, you know, make these two services work together really easily. Uh, I want to be able to just like, you know, I have an idea and I can just make it work and I don't have to like worry about how much it costs because it's just some glue code and stuff like this. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of that is like demos, like what are some cool demos that you can do, which is why I ended up making a lot of interesting webhooks based prototypes. Um, a lot of which ended up being features of products that later came out. For example, one of the first ones was mail hooks and it was a service that just said, um, you sign up, you get an email address and, and emails are parsed and then posted to a UR, to a URL, which um, at the time was very interesting because I was inspired by Flickr's email gateway interface. You could just uh, email photos to Flickr and they'd be in your app. And uh, at, at the time, like if you wanted to do that, you had to deal with a lot of complicated archaic software and, and you know, be an ops person-ish you know, to deal with that kind of stuff. Um, and as a web developer, you know, kind of high level, that was a lot of pain. So if I had the service, it would make that a lot easier, a lot more accessible, more people could do that sort of thing. Um, so I built it as a, as a example and I built a, a bunch of other things, uh, these sort of webhook adapters. Um, but mailhooks, for example, is now a feature of most like Mailgun and SendGrid. Like they have that built in as a feature. Amazon, yeah. Um, but, uh, so, so we'll come back to that. Um, one of the biggest things that uh, helped with this, building those prototypes even, was uh, platform-as-a-service stuff, App Engine, Heroku, because that was the first time um, you could get pretty close to uh, hit a button and it just runs. The problem is there's costs associated with it. App Engine was originally a lot more free, um, uh, and Hiro- even Heroku is pretty free and is increasingly less free now. And so these great platforms that allow you to just kind of like make something to solve a quick problem are kind of disappearing in terms of, you know, their accessibility. Um, if you're willing to pay for them, you're a company, that's fine. But if you're just like, I set something up or, you know, or even if you work at a company, like you have to get like approval to spend money on this thing, like you should just be able to do it. Um, but there is something very interesting and magical about these platforms of service things. So I was very interested in them. Um, Working, at, I worked at NASA eventually, originally to try and do like an app engine type thing, and never, you know we were kind of going from the bottom up. So we did the open uh, the Nova thing first, and later other projects came to be more platforming service things. Right, and Nova is basically the the seed that became OpenStack, and yeah. So, um, but so there's a huge change in my in the way I thought about things when I started working at Twilio, and um, I was originally working on a, a messaging system um, because to me that was an appealing service that I was originally going to do is on my own. Think um, Pusher 
or I, I'm trying to um, PubNub. Basically, um, doing real-time stuff was very interesting to me and making that accessible so you could do it in the browser or from an API or from wherever uh, and be able to push messages through in real-time um, at scale. And a lot of people were afraid of that because they were afraid of long-lived connections because they're used to web requests and all this stuff. And I was like, no, it's actually like there's a lot of things you can do um, to make that work and yeah, there was a really weird scale. Like dark period of time where like Rails and Django took off and then uh, and PHP and everyone just assumed web uh, request runs function yeah. generates response and anything outside of that model afraid of scaling it didn't know how to write it didn't know what software to use for it and we somehow like lost the ability to write all sorts of different yep. apps. Yep. And now we're, and, we're and sort of was, coming was, out of that. I was part of that. Like a lot of the webhook stuff I was doing was to make those lower level, uh, those more interesting protocols more accessible to web developers. Now these days it's like that's not as important because Node.js really changed things by making it less about just the web but about you know any kind of I.O. network stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, you know, even though there were like things before Rails – um, Rails really created the modern web framework uh, paradigm, and Node.js. Even though there were things like Twisted and stuff before it, um, Node really like popularized you know that way of doing kind of network I/O type services. Um, so that's great, and, and it's interesting that those you know problems eventually get solved if something comes up. Um, but uh, so I was doing a real-time messaging service, and I was doing this at Twilio, and Twilio had a really neat architecture. So this was separate from all of Twilio's services. Uh, but I was, you know, there to kind of see like all the interesting, like so everything runs on AWS, and uh, you know, is highly available and, and fault tolerant. And Twilio got a lot of headlines living through certain AWS outages and stuff like this. Um, this was pretty good, well architected. Like a lot of kind of upfront stuff was pretty well figured out, but there were a lot of bad things about it as well, uh, and a lot of them were around the delivery pipeline deployments and all this stuff, which you know has a huge effect on how frequently you deploy and and um, fear. You know, people are afraid to deploy; they might break something. And you have this really complex system, so testing it is is really hard. Um, so after doing that for a year, I, I decided to help form um, the platform team or I team or whatever at, at Twilio. So there's it's kind of a combination of ops and like systems engineer people, and um, we were kind of struggling to to refactor the infrastructure. And at some point, we actually like I convinced everybody, well, let's sit down and do idealized design. So we every Friday we'd actually whiteboard out like, okay, given what we know about. Twilio and, and our architecture and what we want, what what does it look like? Let's let's just write it all out. And then from that we can work backwards and say, what are the pieces that we need to iteratively iteratively go from what we have to what we wrote down? Um, so we started on that. It's a very slow process and we never even got to really implementing stuff, but all the kind of knowledge from that was in my head. And again, those are very different problems than the web ecosystem stuff you're talking about you know distributed systems um you know stateful databases but also uh delivery pipelines and service-oriented architectures and all the problems that everybody kind of really knows and is familiar with in terms of systems programming stuff um which was much more in demand um 
so coming out of Twilio, I had all this in mind, and I remember thinking from the idealized design that I did and breaking it down into components to build up to something. The first component was uh, a what I called a dyno manager, a container manager. So that was basically like, you know, strip down Heroku and just give you an application container and then a way to manage those. So I had that in mind. I'm like, that's the first thing that we need to build. Um, I almost got to start working on it at Twilio, and then you know I couldn't, and then I left. Um, started doing some freelance. Ran into Solomon at Dot Cloud, and I was doing a lot of you know kind of freelance collaboration projects. And he's like, oh, let's collaborate on a project. Um, he mentioned a Skunkworks project that was kind of abandoned called Docker, and I, and I was like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So I helped. Uh, kind of develop that project into, um, you know, kind of thinking through a lot of the, is helpful, I think, as an outsider. They're originally going to just use it to do the V2 of their .cloud platform. Um, but I knew that it was a primitive that would go beyond, you know, their their use case, right? Um, and eventually, I think, you know, they all saw it too. And, uh and what's funny is it was also something that was hard to explain. Took take takes a while for people to understand a new concept like webhooks or Docker or Megalith or whatever. And it also takes a while to figure out the best way to explain it. Um, so Docker took off, but uh, and then I went on to do other stuff. And I was thinking, well, but that's I'm glad everybody loves this Docker thing, but that's just like one piece of the puzzle. Like there's all this other stuff that needs to be as part of that ideal system that we kind of described at Twilio. And a lot of other pieces have fallen out. Some I've made, some other people have made. A lot of the HashiCorp stuff helps out a lot. Kubernetes is a big piece of that. Um, You know, our Kubernetes-like systems kind of part of my process is, you know, I don't, I can't build everything. So if somebody builds something that is, even if it's not exactly what I envisioned, if it's close enough, like, it's better to just use that. Um, And uh, so part of this process, this kind of megalith process that's kind of been going on this entire time behind the scenes in my head um, is not just building stuff, but using other things, especially things that are hard problems, because you want other people to specialize. Like, you know, the HashiCorp guys or the CoreOS guys, they can specialize in all the, um, you know... uh, complexities of dealing with a distributed lock service, right? Um, That's a sort of a classic known hard problem. um, And that's not something, and you could like spend all your time doing that. And I I can't spend all my time on one project, right? I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm trying to go somewhere. So if somebody else solves a problem, especially a hard one like Kubernetes, it's another hard problem. Glad I don't have to solve it. So I can just use Kubernetes, but there's still more, right? There's, we're, this, this ideal. Yeah, this is a huge question of how can you be the most effective. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to spend most of your time uh, optimizing for hard scale problems that big companies are going to pay for the optimization for anyway. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense to steer things towards the ideal end state that you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, uh, live listeners, uh, we're going to take like a five second break while we re- redo the uh, stream real quick. And we should be back. 
So, uh, so future said something that was, uh, I was thinking exactly the same thing and I, uh, so maybe I'll address it and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, so, uh, so future was saying, um, and I don't know who you are. I don't know if it's a he or she, uh, so what, what about Apache Foundation? You know, Megalith sounds like uh, an umbrella organization under which a bunch of projects are going to be, and that sounds like Apache or uh, uh, GNU, uh, GNU Linux. But I want to answer this one real quick because I think okay. I know the answer. Okay. Um, so first of all, the Apache project is where, like, two projects live and the rest go to die. Uh, Apache is like a, a, a governance model um, where the parts don't even necessarily work with each other and have almost nothing to do with each other. Whereas megalith is an ideal end state where each piece fits together well. Um, and you would imagine pieces that are in use and are widely loved would fall out of megalith as they're replaced with other things that are new and cutting edge, but do the, the right thing. Um, and so it's a very different model from Apache, which is like, uh, we want to own your trademarks and manage that. Um, and, really and you could like imagine a, they're like a holding organization because to me, it, and you see this a lot, a lot of companies, they make something open source and then they're like, mm, mm, a lot of people are using this. We don't really want to deal with this. Hey, Apache, you take care of this. Yeah. And there's, there's other reasons for that too. Like, you know, uh, if, if I'm a big company and I own the trademark to this and yeah, I have the yeah. core developers, yeah. I want to push it out so that people believe that it's going to exist beyond me. Um, GNU is also uh, another interesting one to compare it against. So uh, I feel like the problem with GNU is that it's it's uh, all of their radical opinions are in licensing and development model, and almost none of their radical opinions are in what they're actually building. At least not in the last fifteen years right. that I've seen. It's like they already know, you know, the things that they build, and then. The more important thing, and actually, well, they're I playing think... like catch up at this point with the rest of yeah. the world. I mean, there, there's some interesting, like herd is interesting abstractly, but it's, it's not actually there, and it doesn't do anything. It hasn't been there ever, so uh, they're they're an interesting one, but but very different and fit a very different niche. So I was actually trying to think of, to me, kind of reading a description, GNU actually seemed the closest, but yeah, it is more about this. Um, uh, it's a it's a philosophical thing in terms of uh, licensing and, and all that stuff, which to me is not like I'm just MIT or BSD everything. Like I don't, I don't care. Um, to me, that's not the important thing. The important thing is to have the thing that I wanted to exist and that solves the problem um, and potentially that other people use it and that um, you know it's it gets us one step closer to something, which is different than a lot of like a lot of people. They want to solve a problem just to solve the problem so that they can not worry about that problem and they can do whatever they were already doing. I build stuff to solve a problem or make problems not exist, dissolving a problem, if you will, but then to get somewhere else um, as opposed to whatever the... Right. So, so in that sense, you really are similar to GNU because GNU is about this ideal of the GPL and of yeah. this specific definition of free that not everyone signs up for or agrees with. Um, but they really, really believe it, and so they're gunning for that. And in the same way, Megalith is like, look, uh, we will make short-term practical inefficiencies because our end goal is this ideal state that we think when we bring about will bring about really important radical change. Um, so th there are a lot of parallels there, um, even though you're, you're very different and very different end goals. Yeah, uh, one of the best – it's funny. If you go to the GNU website, GNU is, to them, an operating system. Now, the operating system is an interesting metaphor that I've played with with Megalith because um, the idea of an operating system is really just like a bunch of system software that works together to give you 
a system that you can then use to do other things, right? Um, and the idea, and, and so I've also toyed with this of like, um, I don't know if this is going to be too confusing for people, um, but in some ways, Megalith could be a, a single project. Like, it's like, imagine, you know, if we have all these pieces, what could we put together with it? Um, and one of those ideas is, you know, a new take on what an operating system is. And we're starting to see the beginning of this with, like, CoreOS and people talking about, like, data center operating systems or, you know... Um, but to me, it's even more than that. Like even the data, have you heard people talk about like data, the operating system for data center, like Mesosphere is big on like yeah, cloud pushing OS. that. Um, the concept of a cloud OS, yeah. Or the cloud OS, yeah. Cloud OS is too, but also a lot of people now are saying like data center OS type stuff. Um, and that's great. That's the right idea. But um, to, me it's, it? to me, it's even more like an operating system um, that really, you know, solves all these problems needs to consider you know, really the end-to-end, which is, you know, delivery pipeline and the process, the various processes that people are going to use, right? It's not just the technical running of the thing. It's now how does, how do you get new stuff running in there and how do, you know, and so, and people have been slowly breaking down this like stack uh, because of the whole platform as a service thing. And then that being sort of inverted with Docker, which was intentional, is the idea is to like take this monolithic idea of pass break it into components so you can build your own pass exactly how you want it. Um, and, uh, but because of that, we've been able to break down the various like layers or problems um, that are in that. And to me, that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years is t- taking that stack and going from the bottom up, building, building out the components that are missing from there. Um, and so as the new things come out, Kubernetes, I can kind of add them to the stack, right? And um, for the most part, Glider Labs, which is the company I started last year as a services consulting company, we were just taking, like, our ideal stack, our ideal system, and just, like, giving it to people um, and, you know, setting it all up. It was not a product. It's, like, it's a bunch of open source stuff that solves the problem, you know, correctly or in the most, you know, useful, simple way. Um, And... uh, so there, you know, service discovery is in there. You know, distributed coordination. We've got some tools for that. Um, people talking about orchestration or cluster level management. And then there's like kind of more workflowy stuff, which is what a lot of passes add on top of these systems. So like, you know, how do you deploy? Um, you know, all all those kinds of con- concerns that are more high level and different for different organizations. Which is why the whole idea of building components makes sense because it allows you to customize for your organization. Yeah, this is one of the problems when people, uh, you know, I do a lot of continuous deployment consulting and people bring me in and they're like, give me continuous deployment. It's like, well, here's the problem. If you are using a different programming language or a different CI server or a different uh, cloud or a different set of hardware or a different operating system or a different testing framework like the, the, or a different web framework uh, or three languages and which three languages and how do they interoperate and how do you set up all of your components uh, and is it Chef or Puppet or Docker? Any one, if you change any one of those answers, the whole answer to how do you do continuous deployment changes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's dialed specifically into your stack and problems like how do you do zero downtime deploy are different based on each one of those answers as well 
Um, and so you get to the point where you just say, okay, either I have to demand that you use one specific thing. That's sort of the App Engine model. You know, App Engine deploys are free and zero downtime, but you can only operate this one little narrow world. Um, or you say, okay, it's a bunch of different components, but you'll have to figure out the emergent problems that come out of plugging those components together. Yeah. Um, and then another thing, I, c- coming back to sort of webhooks and evented web, uh, even with Glider Labs, where you're really like trying to push this vision of uh, the data center OS or the cluster OS, it's still very data center focused. It's still very internal to a corporation because that's what they see. And it's missing how do all of these things fit together and how do we optimize that? Um, and so like one of the really interesting things to be able uh, Megalith and why I think uh, the funding model for Megalith has to be different and the way that you talk about how to build Megalith has to be different from, say, Kubernetes or anything else that's actually trying to be a data center OS is because Megalith is taking a broader viewpoint. How do we build the, the distributed operating system of the internet? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, And that's more than any one company is going to take on. Yeah. The other thing is you're talking about like what you just said. That is like a crazy big thing. There's no way, and this is part of the problem with Megalith, is there's no way I can tell you exactly what that is, what it'll look like in 10 years, right. or how it exactly will play out. Um, this That's not the approach that I'm taking because that's not going to be an effective one. Like a lot of people, they might have a crazy vision like that, and they'll go to a VC and be like, this is my vision, and then you make it. Uh, or you start working on it, but then in a couple of years, like everything changes, and then it's like, well, you're screwed. Um, so, so doing a bottom-up approach, it's like, well, I know we need to have these service discovery pieces. I know we need a container manager. I know we need, you know, we this and that. And then as new things come out, new developments. Um, CoreOS uh, just came out with a great. Um, I've been wanting this forever, like an authentication service that gives you kind of like a, a OAuth. Uh, front end for different back ends. Um, it's kind of what a lot of like Auth0 and all these things provide as a service, but as open source, which is another thing. There's a lot of really great stuff, a lot of AWS services that are amazing, but I, you know, you can't reach in and do them differently or mm-hmm. like whatever. So there's a right. lot of interesting opportunities. If you adopt for them, you're locked in. Things, yeah. So um, a lot of those ideas kind of go into this, you know, what what Megalith is. Um, but you know specifically, what is Megalith like? What is a tangible thing at the end of the day? I don't, I, I don't know, and that's been really frustrating because a lot of people kind of expect an answer to that. So that's why I think I am kind of moving more towards saying it's kind of like GNU, which even though they say it's an operating system, if you look at the Wikipedia article, it's not an operating. It says GNU is an extensive collection of computer software. That right. can be used to build a Unix-like operating system. Exactly. Which actually is very much like Megalith. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because I, I like giving definitions of Megalith and then watching your face contort as you as you sort of imagine if that's what Megalith is or isn't. Because um, I think I think there can be a real answer to what is Megalith. And I think that it's really interesting um, that, that, that perhaps Megalith is the process of getting to an answer. And not in 10 years, but in two years. And the answer, in my head, the answer is going to end up being, uh, here's the vision. And it's loose enough that as the world changes around it, the practical implementations are going to be different. And it's not, it's not the data center OS. It's the properties that the data center OS needs to have. And it's specifically the ones that people aren't going for that are going to make Megalith interesting. And those 
part of that vision is interoperability at a level that's much higher than just like HTTP APIs. You know, so, so we we need higher fidelity. We need better composability. We need better reusability, and that will that will make really interesting changes in how you approach. Uh, data center OS or the internet OS or whatever we want to call Megalith. Yeah. Um, and so once sort of, so some of those are in your head right now. Some of those we've talked about. Some of those have come out in projects like webhooks. And some of that is still sort of locked up in the just vague idea of we need to figure out what this actually is and push hard in this direction that no one else is pushing in. And so maybe Megalith is just the idea of push in the direction that all the startups aren't necessarily going to make sure we end up with an internet that's for people um, and it's for developers instead of just for for these uh, serfdoms and these city states and these giant corporations. Yeah, a lot of so a lot of people are asking about what is the idealized end state, and actually that's what gets a little bit interesting. Uh, Near term horizon, next one to two years. That's a really helpful thing. Um, honestly. Megalith, mm, Megalith started as like a way to um, shine, a way to show people that there are a, a bunch of projects here, a bunch that exist, um, some that are underdeveloped but have you know a lot of kind of localized, really good ideas, and there's a bunch that ha- don't exist yet, and um, in in the near term at every point of the next 10 years, it's always going to be about just focusing on those projects um, and building out more projects. Um, the the idea, in, in, again, because Megalith is very much about externalizing the process of the way I think about things. I don't... I could, I could list some things that I think are in the end state. Um, you know, like I think... Um, uh, you know... Everything should be more in these kind of high-level things. Everything should be more programmable. You should be able to wire systems together more easily. There should be cheap-to-free infrastructure to just like build little things and build more infrastructure for other people. Um, in terms of uh, a little bit more practical stuff, like uh, more of the systems. Uh, someone said structured DevOps recently. I don't know if, what exactly that means, but um, there's a lot of DevOps. Uh, operator knowledge that's being encoded into a lot of tools like Kubernetes or what have you um, that's basically trying to automate um, stuff or augment various OPSI processes and the original ideal for DevOps was to try and you know combine you know bridge the gap not just make better tools for both but everybody kind of thinking in both languages Um, and so to me a lot of that is getting more everyday developers to be better ops people by having better tools and tools that are simple for them to use and understand. Like Docker is um, one of the biggest recent tools, ops, ops-like tool that um, developers embrace. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it was in, in the design. So a lot of, again, Megalith kind of expressed a lot of my own values in terms of like, um, making simple uh, tools with a good user experience and kind of doing kind of magical things but still being configurable and extensible. Um, and so uh, there's most of the tools in the ops space are made for ops people or, or one-off scripts. And there you know, isn't a lot of like thinking systemically 
um, how to make how to solve the not only solve the problem in a good enough way, but also make it simple enough uh, and accessible enough for more regular developers. Um, so that's kind of a, a big part of the, the kind of tools that I make. Yeah, one of the one of the a, a sort of different analogy that I think of a lot is um, what's the virtual memory of the cluster OS or of the data center OS. You know, virtual memory lets you say, go ahead and use as much memory as you want. The operating system will roughly figure out how to make that work. Um, as long as you don't, like, dramatically exceed what the system can do, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, that's not true. And as you care about performance more and more, you actually have to care a lot more about whether or not you're fitting into real physical RAM or not. Um, but we want that we want that sort of metaphor to live in the, in the distributed OS. Um, for instance, if I start an EC2 project right now, the first question I have to answer is where do I want to store my data? And Amazon themselves have like five answers to that question. You know, S3, RDS, and pick one of three databases, uh, simple DB, uh, the other one I can't remember. Like it, it, it becomes incredibly hard to pick between these things. And someone will come around and just be like, here's the API. If you write to this, 99% of what you write will just work, and 1% of the time you'll have to hire someone who's great, and they will optimize it, and it'll be fine. Right. Um, that will, that will make things so much easier for developers. That was something that I really loved about the Unix philosophy uh, today when people build systems. And granted, it's because they're dealing with complex. It's very complex, so it's like it's hard to just solve the problem, mm-hmm. let alone think kind of higher level than that. Um, but uh, so many people are solving problems specifically for themselves in their complex uh, situation. It's very hard to make a good sort of general purpose uh, solution and then make that... Uh, accessible to people, but the Unix. One of the things that helped is that the Unix philosophy was was kind of about you know not making it not making something that works for 100 percent of the use cases, but something that works for 80 percent of them, the majority. Right. And at some point, if you need something more, you can use something else. But the way people work most of the time when writing system software is they're working on 100 percent for their particular problem. Right. Right. Uh, or a lot of you know, or or it's harder to kind of um, do that 80% thing with a more complex system, like something like Kubernetes. There's a problem with projects like Kubernetes just because they're so much more complicated, which is one of my biggest critiques is that it could be decomposed more, the problem. I've, I've spent the last few years thinking about how it could be decomposed more, and there's really like nothing I can do because... You, you know, didn't make Kubernetes. Yeah, I didn't yeah. make Kubernetes, and you know it's already doing its own thing, and it's like I have to break into that community and kind of influence people there, and you know maybe it'll happen over time, and I can do what I can, but like I have all this other stuff. So, um, but but yeah, so somebody pointed out getting developers to be better at ops um, through better tools. I think that's part of it. Um, it's not just saying like, hey, we're going to have tools that are going to solve problems for you, but tools that actually kind of educate you. This is a big idea that I use a lot um, when I think about building tools and building systems is, um, first of all, you can't automate everything. Like, there's, you can go too far in automation. Some things you do need a human for, especially in ops-type stuff. Um, but uh, there is this idea of, like, our collective knowledge or collective best practices. And one of the best examples of this is going from, you know, hey, the everyday web developer can just do standard web request stuff, sorry, to, oh, no, JS is out and it's fancy and, you know, marketed well and all this stuff. But now all those people are getting 
they're relearning a lot of stuff that a lot of people already knew, but still they're learning about mm-hmm. how to build um, TCP servers, mail servers, you know, all these other interesting things that they never really um, thought of before because they have a tool that allows them to explore that um, and learn those things through through doing it. Right. And the, the, uh, so I, I worked on and worked closely with the Python Twisted project and I've written a bunch of Twisted code. And so when Node came out, my my... Uh, you know, experience conflict with Twisted was like, oh, they're doing everything wrong because they're not optimizing for these problems that we're never going to hit and they're not solving these things and uh, maybe because it's JavaScript it'll be more accessible. What I missed was actually because Node gets all of the, the, the default paradigm for programming is callbacks and there's no other option. So no one's ever looking at Node and confused about why they have to write things a certain way. It just says, okay, if you write in Node, it's callbacks, it's a single main thread, and it's async I.O., and that's it. It's always those things. Um, and so that had crazy benefits because it forced you to think in that model. And so if I said Node, I was describing, similar to PHP, not just a programming language or an API, but also a paradigm for programming in. Um, and as such, it was very easy for people to start learning this, and it, Node became yeah. shorthand for async I/O. In fact, many people don't understand how what async I/O would be outside of Node. Um, they're, they're one in the same way. In the same way, that when people say PHP, they often just mean a file that the URL consp- uh, corresponds to where the file is on disk, and the file gets yeah. run, and all those that part of the paradigm. So Docker, though, is another example. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it, it starts getting people to think a little bit more about ops stuff, even if it's just little stuff like, what software needs to be installed for this? If they're writing the Docker file or whatever, it's like, okay, well, okay, I need to install these things. And, oh, damn, this thing is huge. I should pare it down, try and get it more minimal packages installed and stuff like this. So it's actually, um, it's almost as if maybe the pattern is, and this is, again, a systems thing, but um, lowering latency and feedback loops. If you can, if you can uh, increase frequency of feedback loops, um, I mean, there's, this is everywhere. It's one of the best systems patterns, but um, it improves almost every system um, that you can apply this to. And so uh, if you can create a system that allows people to learn more about something quicker, like they're going to learn more about it quicker, right? Um, as opposed to it being this, like, black box where you don't know what's going on. Um, so part of design, the way I design tools is um, not trying to, like, be the solution that magically, like, I, I do think about things in terms of magic, like, because that's a big, like, local tunnel. It's like, local tunnel 8000. Now, magically, you have a, a web accessible URL. Um, but uh, but to, to, to make tools that you can actually uh, learn about a particular domain um, by, by using it. So, so one to two years. At, okay, at so, the end so, of the day, it's like once once we all understand that that this is kind of the idea of Megalith, and uh, part, uh, to me, a lot of it is like the design principles, um, the process, um, the individual projects. Some of them are more pet projects of mine. There's a really interesting um, analogous thing. It's sort of in a different field. Um, so I don't uh, I don't know if you followed the Double Fine Adventure um, Kickstarter. But uh, one of the really, really interesting so, – so it's Kickstarter. It's done by a famous adventure game developer. They're saying, hey, I'm going to raise money and make an adventure game. Now, almost every other Kickstarter was, I'm going to raise money and make this thing I just showed you. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. But uh, and, and the beautiful part of this was not only am I going to make this game. As part of the same Kickstarter, we're going to document the process. Yeah. 
Um, now, I, I backed it just sight unseen because at this point, uh, none of the games had really uh, done super well on Kickstarter, and I was super, super bought into the Kickstarter model before I knew that Kickstarter existed. Um, and this was a reputable... Like, a reputable developer, yeah. famous history. Um, Cory Doctorow had talked a long time ago about, in a post-DRM world, people hold things for ransom, and everyone will pay a million dollars collectively, and then they'll let it go. And Kickstarter sort of is that model of, I'm going to build this thing if I get enough money, and then I can give it away for free because I've already made enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so the, the really interesting thing about Double Fine Adventure, and you get to watch this if you watch the documentary, which is now entirely on YouTube for free, um, is that uh, he took money without an idea, you know, he, and, and not because he didn't have an idea. Um, he has tons of ideas. He has ideas all the time. But because he wanted the, the documentation to start at the very beginning. He wanted people yeah. to go along with the process, follow the process, and see how something gets made from the very beginning. And so when Double Fine Adventure was announced, um, like, there was nothing. They were like, hey, give us money and we'll do this thing. Uh, similarly, I feel like Megalith is like, um, I have this vision. Uh, I have a track record of delivering tools. Um, I want people to – and now, now it's not necessarily an ask for money, although maybe it will be. I don't know. Um, but it's an ask for participation and ask for an, uh, an understanding that there is this set of ideals and we're going to figure out what those are more concretely over time. And people were really surprised with Double Fine Adventure. They were like, okay, we backed it uh, three months from now. Where is it? Um, and if you're watching the documentary, which you only get if you backed at a certain tier and it was sort of insider only, but you could watch as it was unfolding, like the end of the first month, he was like, uh, okay, I think maybe I have a third of the general idea of the rough framework of the, of the, the game and the developers are off coding in parallel, trying to like build an abstract system that may work to whatever game he comes up with. Um, and so it's like the, the, re, the, the outsider expectation when you announce something is that you're going to instantly then re- be able to reveal it or that you have it 100% developed in your mind. Um, when the insider uh, view is always like, hey, we announced this thing because we know that we're going to do it and we have a rough idea. Now, because there is traction, because the idea is clicking with people, that validates it and now we're going to continue to work on it and things like that. So Megalith is sort of in that space yeah. a little. The problem is that's super hard. Like everybody, I mean, other people listening, like there, I, I, I can tell by the questions being asked, people are still like wanting to understand still what Megalith is because I'm sure we haven't given a, I haven't given no. a great answer. Well, and part of it is because you talk about it uh, very concretely without ever defining it because I think in your head it is, uh, the idea is something very concrete, but you, you can't express it very right. succinctly yet. Um, and no, we're working on that. Like this podcast is right, even working right, towards right. that. That's why I wanted to do this. Um, but you know, also to me, it's a lot. It's part of the process. Like part of the that Kickstarter was creating a documentary about the process, um, mostly for entertainment. But you know, you can imagine it being helpful to some indies or whatever. But in this case, like part of the point of saying that there is some kind of project called Megalith is to say um, to help me say there is a system that needs to be designed where I externalize how I think about designing software. Um, uh, you know, what are my design principles? Um, what are my biases in like, you know, these kinds of libraries and minimizing dependencies. And you know, here's this kind of like, so far, here's the roughly ideal stack. And so this is what we should be kind of playing with Kubernetes, et cetera, whatever. Um, and, uh, and then also having this, this project list. Um, so, 
to me, it's it's a little bit more about the individual projects, and I think that that's what's um, going to be frustrating for people. Is um, Megalith sounds like mm, like the 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 ideal that's behind it is too it, like I ideal states are already abstract things that you can't be like here's an example um but this one's even the ideals are kind of abstract so it's going to be very difficult um yeah it, it is definitely and i've said this a couple of times it's not a project it's more an initiative or a mission or maybe a manifesto and so this is again like this is why i haven't just been a lot of people signed up to the mailing list to find out more this is why it's taking a while um, and why, like, there hasn't been a good answer yet, because I'm still trying to figure out, you know, I know it's probably not a project, so I shouldn't be calling it a project. Maybe it's an initiative or... Uh, but in a sense, it is a project in that um, it's your next 10-year project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, it's, it, but it's, like, not... It's, like, it's not really, going to be a GitHub page. Uh, it's not going to be one GitHub project. Yeah. It's not... Yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of projects. I mean, it might be. Ten years from now, there might be megalith.com. You go, you click a button, and you get a megalith. Yeah, whatever that is. And, and the, the other thing is, because this is an open process, you know, collectively, maybe what, you know, that what that thing is that you get at the end of the day um, in ten years or sooner or later is um, co-developed by other people that are participating. And I don't expect people to jump in and not know what it's about, like, the, in, for what the purpose of Megalith right now um, should be to help me to say, here's all the projects um, in the short term. Here's all these kind of like near-term interesting projects. Here's a bunch of projects that are kind of in the pipeline. Um, and here's like how I go about thinking about these projects and how um, – uh, you know, they might develop. One of the things I don't do with projects is say, here's the vision for it. Um, and so I need to start doing that more. And so really it's, in the near term, it's more about the individual projects than Megalith. And so in that way, I think Megalith might like take, go, um, uh, not be something that's talked about that much. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, so it's one of the more it'll, interesting... It'll, 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 Maybe it's like something that only the inner circle of these, you know, <laughs> contributors of uh, these projects, uh, you know, think about. Right. So, so, so just for those of you playing at home, the game, the uh, while you're watching, anytime Jeff talk about Megalith, anytime he says a sentence that could be equally applicable to a cult, you take a shot, <laughs> and you will end up drunk as a skunk. No. So, so one of the interesting things I see. Uh, when you do uh, open source projects is like when you talk to someone in person about that project, uh, they, they come away understanding the holistic viewpoint, you know, going back to systems, it's not about the, the parts, it's how the parts fit together and interact that actually gives the system its, its value. Um, the, the problem with a lot of the, the problem with marketing a lot of the pieces that you're building is that if you just look at the piece in isolation, it's not that interesting. Yeah. It's like, oh, you, you wrote a hundred lines of bash that lets you yeah. uh, push a Docker thing. Yeah. But in the greater context of Megalith, in the systems viewpoint, you say, okay, look, when I have this, and also when we have these other things, yeah. Yeah. they all plug together and you get this amazing thing. Yeah. Please buy my vision just long enough to have us all build these tools together instead of having to resell every single project one at a time please please pay attention to this project it's tiny and it's though, really important it'll become this big thing over and over and over again. yeah though that's part of it like a lot of my projects um to varying degrees have some 
adoption, like I think about adoption a lot. A lot of people when they build a project open source, they're like, I solve my problem. And I don't think about adoption. I think about adoption a lot. Um, there's a lot of things that go into it. One of the many things that I would like to document in this process, but, um, you know, I do want to market individual projects increasingly. Um, I'm getting better at it and then spending time on it. Um, and I think that's an important thing. What you just said reminds me of a problem, a conflict that we had in um, Flynn. And so, so a lot of people are confused about Flynn because a lot of people thought that was my project. Um, Flynn being a, an open source platform as a service um, that was uh, sort of crowdfunded-ish um, a little, maybe a year or less than a year after Docker came out and was popular. Um, Flynn was actually started by some friends of mine uh, on the East Coast, and they, they wanted my help. And um, so I, uh, and at the time it was like, well, I can really only work on stuff that I'm paid for so they had to pay me so i was literally just a contractor on on flynn but it was very much like they it's wanted so me to be a part of the plus it's just your kind of thing yeah it, it's very much so I, I took like spiritual ownership even though i had no actual ownership of it and um kind of helped frame it and, and and stuff like that and um it was it was a, it was a really good collaboration um but one of the things that kind of changed when I wasn't able to work with them anymore um, because of financial reasons, like I have to get paid somehow, um, which is, again, figuring out how to fund this is a different conversation. But um, the uh, what happened was we were originally trying to do something that was too hard. We were trying to be two things at once. We were saying, hey, we're an out-of-the-box solution and we're a bunch of pieces. And I, I think I learned from Flynn that you really can't um, – it's really hard to do both. And so um, there are a lot of implications of different paths. For example, if you're a bunch of pieces, maybe you have a repo for each piece. But that's also going to make it harder for the single thing, right, for development of the single thing. Yeah, sort so, of like how the LAMP stack, as it took off, all of a sudden there were LAMP installers. And like you ran it on your on your laptop and all of a sudden you had one of each of these things. So so there, there, there's a conflict there. The other conflict is in terms of like marketing. Like, in, um, you know, if you have one thing, it's like you market one thing. Mm-hmm. If you have individual projects, you actually have to do really good documentation and, and marketing for each individual project. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the way it should be. But there is a reason why we had to do the single thing um, and why eventually they focused on that single thing um, because that's an easier sell. It's easier to spend your time on that. So uh, what happened after is I believe um, a a while after uh, I I stopped working on it, they raised some money. They raised the money based on saying, like, we're building a solution. It wasn't about those individual, and that slow. You know, I saw over time that they started consolidating the repos, putting it all into more one repo, not caring about the individual individual pieces being used independently. And that's just what happens mm-hmm. when you say, "Okay, our purpose, our goal now is to make this solution." Right. Um, that's going to be hard enough, so you're not going to be able to invest time and deal with all the inefficiencies of dealing with individual components. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's much more important to focus on individual components, and that's how I've been operating things. And one of the, you know, even though it's so much easier to say, oh, Megalith, this is the project, here it is, um, it's dangerous because it's not 
about that. It's about the individual projects. I think that's something that Amazon does really, really well, um, where each individual component – people just say EC2, but like if you actually go to, to AWS, it's like that's one minor component, and every one of those components ships on its own release schedule. They sort of do their own marketing communications. There's a little yeah. bit of aggregation, but for the most part – and some of them compete with each other. Yeah. Um, and some of them get deprecated because they lose uh, and they're they're separate teams and they're different people at the company and they're it, it works really really well yeah. uh, now they're at a, they're at a pretty big scale to be able to afford that but uh, I, 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 I don't know that it's impossible I guess is what I'm saying it may be impossible for a venture backed uh, series A or seed funded star, startup uh, but I don't think it's incompatible necessarily with uh, with the world of money at least not right now yeah, and, and, and um, you know, CoreOS is actually do- doing a pretty good job as well. You know, they have a handful of open source projects um, and HashiCorp. But, you know, both of them also have that core product that they need to sell that's going to be their, their moneymaker, mm-hmm. um, uh, which also influences all of their product projects, um, whether it's how much time is invested in them or what features are prioritized. Um, you know, it's always going to be aligned with their money-making goals. Sometimes it's good, but sometimes isn't. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, it's like, uh, well, it's, like it's like Megalith is a federation of projects. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Like, to me, GNU is kind of one of the closest things where instead of the – someone mentioned instead of the political, it's more about the technology design choices. Mm-hmm. Um like you, you could easily imagine uh, a project that you didn't start being adopted into Megalith explicitly. Um, you know, if if the author of the project bought into the vision and you you agreed with it. Yeah. So yeah, people are talking about constraining Megalith, and and you know, I I and and a lot of this. So here's the thing. And this is one of the things I'm struggling with. To me, for the past ten years or whatever, this way of thinking in this totally abstract you know, whatever, having this ideal that doesn't really exist. I can't even really describe it, but like, it's kind of, it's almost as if the ideal is bottom up itself. Like it's based on these core principles and values. Um, and, and, you know, rough ideas of like the world should be this way. Um, to me has, has felt like it's been effective. Like it's allowed me to build projects that are innovative and people find useful and interesting and, you know, da, 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 da. Um, and, uh, be, the, the fact that it works for me, you know, who knows if, but it, it, the point is like, do I want to change the way I think about things just to communicate it better? Yeah. I mean, so like one, one, uh, I, I see this really common with startups. So, so the startup sits down and they say, okay, our vision is we're going to solve, um, cancer. Like literally we're going to try and beat cancer and step one is we're going to sequence DNA and step 0.1 is we're going to do this one specific DNA sequencing really, really well. And then they come out and they say, we're going to do DNA sequencing really well. And it's like, okay, their actual vision internally is something very different. And rarely do they share that. Tesla, for instance, did share that. They said, look, what we want to do is bring the electric car to mass adoption. And the only way to do that is to sell 
really, really well the first car that we build. And the only way to do that is to find really, really rich people who are willing to pay the crazy premium. But don't worry, because we, we've done the projections and these things are increasing exponentially. And we think eventually we will get to the $30,000, you know, every person luxury car, and then maybe eventually the $15,000 every person car. Um, and they said it very explicitly openly. And then so far they've been doing it, maybe yeah. not right on schedule. Um, so the question is like, do you, do you want to go down that route with Megalith of saying, hey, the end vision is this big thing, but for now I'm just going to tell you that Megalith is this other thing because that's something concrete that people can rally behind. And if you buy me on the vision, that's even better. But if you want to buy the sports car right away, that's something we can do. And I think you don't want to do that. And I think not taking venture capital and not being a startup and, and being being a different form of organization. You know, Originally, you were talking about it as a research lab. Um, being a different entity is what allows Megalith to be different um, and is, in a sense, core to its being. And as part of that, not having these like stakeholder-driven, concrete milestones, specific prediction sort of uh, definition. Um, but you're also not asking for money right now. You're not, uh, you're not hard-charging towards a specific goal. That, that's going to change. Yeah. I think – so just to kind of um... – talk about that a little bit i think um i i I was planning to do a sort of um uh patreon campaign to sort of help um help kind of get this started and i did not intend to mention megalith at all in that campaign the idea is to focus more on the individual projects because that's the tangible things that people be like you know here's here's uh here's docker here's local tunnel request bin you know webhooks uh here's a bunch of other things you might have used you know registrator to i can just list a bunch of stuff um you know some people are familiar with my work. Most people aren't. I can say, like, collectively, my GitHub stars makes me, you know, makes my collective project, like, the 17th most popular on GitHub or whatever. Like, just kind of sell individual projects and that idea of, like, I'm going to keep making projects like this. Um, that's because Megalith is just such a, uh, a, I don't know, rabbit hole, just trying to explain it. Like, it's too subtle, it's too complicated, it's too big. Um, and I didn't expect to have a good answer yet. And un- unfortunately, I probably set expectations poorly by saying, hey, Megalith. Um, but the idea is to try and get people along for this ride of, of figuring out and describing it. In the meantime, let's, you know, in terms of someone who's asking about what degree am I looking for involvement, really I want to say, Oh, uh, Megalith for whatever reason is interesting, even though you don't know what it is. Well, here's individual projects that um, it would be nice for you to help, or if not help, you know, talk about or you know support financially or or whatever. Um, just uh, so does that make sense? Yeah. So um, like it's it's one of the interesting problems with the open source software is that um, the earlier you go op- open in the development of the software, um, people uh, don't know at the beginning whether they're a consumer or a developer or a contributor or uh, which one of these roles they fit into. And you end up with this problem where you're like, look, uh, it's not even alpha. Like we just started this journey. Um, like if I took venture funding, if I took seed funding on an idea and, and a, a pitch deck, 
uh, day one wouldn't be the start of implementation. Day one would be the start of figuring out what it actually is. Yeah. And I've been, I've been down that. And it's, it's, it's really rough when you're at the end of week two and you've just been talking a lot about high-level ideas and sort of trying to pick a direction. Yeah. Um, and uh, outsiders aren't generally equipped to handle that. They're used to, hey, you named a thing. Give me the hard pitch. Sell yeah, me on it. Yeah, it's always like someone... What's your elevator pitch? It's really, really unfortunate because somebody ended up on the list, um, and and I sent out a thing about this show, uh, and I was like, "Hey, everybody, you know, I'm going to talk about Megalith on this podcast." And da 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 da. And his, his, uh, somebody replied to it and said, um, "It's it's uh, you need to provide more context because I'm I'm pretty sure I intended to sign up for this list, but I don't know what these words are, <laughs> and it's I can't really respond to that." Like, yeah. Just unsubscribe them. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, like, so in some in some sense, maybe Megalith is the um, is the the people having the conversation at the very beginning of the project, and one day Megalith will be more than that. But right now, that's where it's at. Yeah, it's an ongoing and conversation. It's the, feeding into and has the, always been feeding into the individual projects that you're working on. Yes. For each one, you do have that elevator pitch. Yes. You do have that yes. hard charging. Here's why you use it. Here's when you use it. Yeah. Here's what I'm building and what its, uh, what its value is to you. And I, and I feel like, um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the potential ways to explain Megalith is to say, here's all these projects. The problem with that is there's a shit ton of projects. So it's like, <laughs> you know, and some of them don't even, like some of them are just so kind of odd. So one popular project that I'm working on is called Registrator. And Registrator was made popular because of Docker's popularity. And it's solving a really interesting problem, which is, um, and this assumes you understand what service discovery is and why that's important and, and why it's a good idea to have some kind of service discovery system. Um, what Registrator, Re- Registrator did was it made it sort of um, magically just when you start a container, it's added to your service discovery uh, registry. And that sounds like a ridiculous thing, um, but it turns out to be like one of the most popular recent projects that I've done. And um, it's it's not even the whole, like it doesn't even solve all the, the, the problem. Um, you know, it works with a couple of other projects, which could be aggregated into something that quote unquote solves service discovery, um, which by the way uses a, you know console um, or etcd. Um, but that's a sort of like mini cluster within the megalith ecosystem made up of these individual projects that you know. How do I sell Registrator? Oh, it, it makes service discovery. Uh, uh, you know, it, it makes services automatically register. You know, I forget what the title I used to originally talk about it. Um, so that's, but some other projects are very easy to explain. Um, I work on one called Sigil, which is a standalone command line tool that does template processing. Like, there is, you know, there, there's a lot of template processors that you can kind of wrap up to use from the command line, or there's template processors part of other command line tools like Ansible and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, the way I think about it is I want to process a template and pipe it into something. So, yeah. you know, I couldn't find anything. Old school Unix model. Yeah. Doesn't so exist. Sigil is a template processor, and it lets you do arbitrary, t- and it turns out to be a really flexible tool um, that allowed me to like drop Ansible completely because I could just generate a cloud config file to configure a system. Um, you know, it's relatively simple because everything's containers and all this stuff, mm-hmm. but, um, 
like that didn't exist and I made it exist and now that's an interesting tool um, that you could use for other stuff, non-op stuff. Like you need to render a template for something on the command line. You know, uh, yeah, this is still not clear on um, looking for collaborators. Well, so so in a sense you are, you have been. Um, but the the question is sort of uh, what, what's the methodology? What's the next step? When yeah. do you want those people to well, come Well, so in? my first step was, hey, help me define it. And that's kind of what this is about. And I think that'll kind of be an ongoing discussion. I wanted to limit that to people that basically because of the idea that a lot of people are going to expect a certain kind of like hard answer. Um, it, it's it's kind of got a self-filter into people that are willing to deal with the ambiguity, um, which is kind of what this podcast is, is for. Um, and, and so, you know, one path is figuring out how to describe it. And maybe it's too, um, maybe I won't have a good answer for a while. Maybe I can have a good enough answer now, and then I can do the next step, um, which to me is... Um, Well, I have a bunch of – probably define that, that roadmap. I have a bunch of different things. How do I prioritize these things? And that's something that I could use help with figuring out, one of which is, um, you know, this, this Patreon campaign, which I don't even, you know, I don't even need, necessarily, like, I, well, I want it. But I don't expect the Megalith community or whatever it is now to, to back it, but to help even just market it. Like, that's a useful thing. Um, so, but an upcoming step because of uh, funding it is is to describe the the funding plan, the funding model, which starts getting into Glider Labs and stuff like that as well. But so that's a whole different discussion. Um, but uh, all right, so I'm going to start uh, drying out short elevator pitches for Megalith, and then okay. you're going to shoot them down. Yes. So Megalith is not the data center OS, but the internet OS of 10 years from now. What does that mean? No, I just, that's it. That's the whole definition. <laughs> uh, Megalith is how you are going to write software in the future. Me- Megalith is the process of figuring out how you are going to write software in the future. To, I, I, I mean, it's going to end up being super abstract because that's sort of yeah. sort of where it is right now. I think you'd be I think you'd be okay with an extremely abstract definition, and then people go, "Wait, I want to know more." Because that's sort of I mean, how you describe how do you describe Windows in one sentence? How do you describe Linux in one sentence? It's an operating system. What's an operating system? Well, it's a collection of services that make writing software for your computer easier and managing multiple pieces of like there is no trivial one-sentence description of an operating system that you understand until you understand the entire concept of an operating system. Um, I mean, this was Twisted's problem for the longest time. Like, Twisted had a ton of definitions, and they were all great insider definitions. If you knew every single word and you understood what Twisted was, you're like, yeah, that defines it. And if I told someone else, they're like, uh, event-based async networking IO stack with, like, what? Like, none of those words made any sense. Yeah, and that's something that I think about a lot is... It's, it's especially hard because I'm particularly bad at it, but it's also because of the nature of the, the things that I do and work on, um, you know, making things more consumable, right? Um, that's important to me. Um, I want to have a good answer for Megalith, uh, what is Megalith, and, um, but I know that it's going to be hard. Um, so, but... You know, I, I really do like the idea of saying, like, Megalith is the 10-year project 
of figuring out the next non-incremental uh, uh, revolutionary step towards uh, software development, um, you know, towards the future of software yeah. development. And just, just leave it at like, like we're figuring it out. We have ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, if we knew what it was, we'd be done. Yep. Um, What's interesting is there, there are projects that are kind of like that. And I call these like super idealist, ambitious projects that will almost always fail because they are thinking usually more top down. I know it sounds so like segue, like, like, uh, I don't know if you remember the two months before the segue came out when all the buzz was like, Oh my God, transportation as we know it is going to be shooken up. And then it came out and people are like, are you kidding me? Uh, and now everyone wants a hoverboard or something. I don't know. I'm old. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, the, the cool thing, though, is that at least that there are, because it is actually a bottom-up process, that you can say that and then say, here's a bunch of projects. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's, uh, pe- people are not expecting high-level vision bottom-up process, because that's very different from how companies work publicly and from how open source generally works publicly, although it is very often how companies work internally. Um so maybe that's part of it. Megalith is the the high-level design of the next non-iterative leap forward in software development and the sequence of small projects that iteratively get us there. Period. That sounds – I need to think about it, but that sounds very close. Great. Well, it's a good thing this is recorded. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 th- I, think, I think there's – If other people have I- ideas, pitches like Timothy's on – you know what what megalith is what it sounds like i I think there's a good soundbite for it that we could come up with in the next month or two that's just vague enough that people won't love it (laughs) but it'll work yeah and that's fine because it's a tenure project like people it doesn't need to like i'm fine letting the concept itself slow cook maybe maybe the second Um, sentence should just be like if you hate the ambiguity of this sentence it's not ready for you you know, just like push favorite, push those people away right away. This is one of my favorite interview questions is how well do you deal with ambiguity? <laughs> how well do you deal with uh, huh? <laughs> Are you even the question? Just don't even answer don't yeah. even finish the question. Um, I like I like uh, uh, screaming at someone, how do you how do you deal well with pressure? Oh, screaming! Just absolutely, yeah. I would scream. Except with these mics, it would it would just be awful. But yeah, you just scream at them like, "How do you deal with?" But no, I've never done that. What? Uh, I, I, want I, to. I no, I mean uh, part of so my interview question, which I can easily tell people about now, was was uh, explain the internet. Um, and then what I would what I would do is you can have a hundred different answers. You can start talking about TCP. You can start talking about the economics of it. All you have to do is ask me enough questions until you get to where you don't know. Yeah. And all I want to do is see, um, once you get to something you don't know, how do you reason about it? Uh, I don't care how much you actually know. If you know almost nothing about the internet, that's not that big of a deal. Um, what I care about is how you deal with um, going off into the unknown. Do you lie? Do you make shit up and not tell me you're making shit up? Like, I don't care if you're like, I don't know, but here's what I think. But if you're just like, oh, this is how it is, and then you stick to your guns on something and I know you made it up, like, that, that, that's, that's the, the process. And obviously there are other people interviewing for the other aspects. Like, I didn't have to do a hardcore technical interview because other people are doing hardcore technical interviews. Um, and looking back on it, there are all kinds of problems with that interview um, in that it filters for people who in an interview circumstance can deal with those set of pressures. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not advocating this as the, the, you know, end all be all interview method, but I really did like 
um, when people are in that moment where they finally realize, like, I am being asked a question that I have no idea what the answer is to. Um, and I'm in an interview, like, what, what do I do? What do I say? How do I deal with that? Um, so a little bit of pressure. I, I always start off with joking and, and laughing with people to and make sure. And then you yell at them. Yeah, and then I yell at them. So somebody asked, uh, what, what layer are you talking about? Um, is this, you know, and this is, you know, t- t- trying to help define Megalith OS, platform, tooling, services, libraries. Um, the answer is kind of just yes. Um, OS is, you know, I, I, I don't want to go out and build a core OS. I don't want to, you know, but there are like, you know, what is an operating system? Well, mm-hmm. there's a kernel, there's some supporting tools, and we already do a lot of stuff with uh, Alpine, which is just a distribution of, of BusyBox. We use that in a lot of the tools that we build, um, and uh, we keep figuring out what the best uh, host OS is. Um, that's probably one of those things that is not something that I want to do it's something that I want somebody else to solve, so that's why you know we use CoreOS or you know, whatever. Yeah, it really does feel like. Um, but but if you expand the idea of what an operating system is, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the data center OS or the internet OS, whatever. Well, it's already happened too. I mean, you look at any modern operating system, and there are a collection of user land libraries and also kernel APIs and all. Like it's it, there's not one answer anymore. Right, right, and even GNU, like GNU is not an operating system because it does. It doesn't actually include like the the Linux kernel. It's made to work with the Linux kernel, but in theory, it could work with other kernels. Yeah, like and their you own. Have GNU, it, yeah, it you have GNU work software with. on all kinds of stuff. You can install GNU software on Darwin, whatever. But um, platform is also abstract. I think platform, you know, you think of maybe as a, a, a service like a like a Heroku or something, or you know. Um, Potentially, that's there. Like, I would, I would love a, 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 an internet where the platform is embedded in the internet. Like, right now, the internet is about a communications protocol, and it kind of lets you figure out what uh, what's on the boxes that you plug into that network. Uh, and the internet says nothing about applications, um, uh, you know, how they're run, and, and all that stuff. And this is actually uh, an interesting vision that Solomon proposed, and Docker will probably never get to. Um, but imagine an internet where the internet, like part of the fabric of the internet is an app platform. Maybe not what you use for building next Google, but something that's actually good enough for building a small utility or your first app or whatever, if that was just part of the commons of the internet. Um, so in that way, thinking long-term, maybe platform, but, um, I'm, I'm really thinking more about tooling, tools, services, that you can run uh, most of these things are are open source uh things that you can run on on your own but there are um you know i've built things that do have a service that uh, element to them local tunnel had a service uh, part of it that was part of the magic is you didn't have to run a server there was a public server that was already running and how do you how do you run that service like that was part of what feeds back into this is um i need to have good cheap uh, platform infrastructure to run these little services. Um, So the local tunnel server or request bin, you know, runs as a service. Uh, And and I can, there's a a handful of projects that are on my list of upcoming projects that are very lightweight little things that need to run as a service. Um, So there's some of them, libraries, lots of libraries, but mostly I think it's about tooling and tools right now. Um, But it really... The answer, I think, is just yes. Um, 
Okay, let's take another five-second break while we resync the stream. Sorry about this, guys. I, I'm surprised we're... Yeah, we're we're at a, an hour forty-five. Um, I think I think we want to wrap up the podcast and then go into the post show. Um, I think one of the one of the um, most almost most interesting to me aspects of Megalith uh, is also one of the the less explored ones is is how not just technology but social and economic factors are influencing Megalith and are going to influence it. So for instance, uh, recent EU ruling that EU data is going to have to be kept in EU servers, that's going to dramatically change the way that you develop applications. When every application, when your 10-line little cheesy brand new application has to be geo-distributed because of laws, that's going to change the way that people uh, do programming. When you want to do open source that's auto-sustainable and you want an economic model there, when we have micropayments and I as an individual developer can efficiently charge you a penny per use, the types of software we're going to write are going to change and the system on top of that that we're going to need to uh, build is going to change. Um, And Megalith sort of encompasses that um, in a way that all of the things that I think of as competitors, where like Kubernetes could be considered a competitor, Megalith, and also a a cooperator, um, they're all focused on either the classic open source model or uh, venture-backed startup model or large corporation model. They all they all fit into one of these three big buckets, and so they're all sort of focused on those uh, issues. And I think it's very interesting what's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you look at all of the major revolutions, they've come from places that people weren't paying attention to. Um, because if people were paying attention to, it would have happened earlier, or it would have happened gracefully. Um, these like giant leaps forward in technology almost come almost always come from a place that people hadn't looked to. And when they finally looked there, it turns out that there was a gold mine that no one had been paying attention to. And all of a sudden we see, you know, uh, 20 years of progress leap forward in a year or two. Right. And those are, again, these are like ideas that have helped shape, you know, what it is in my mind, you know, the pre-named megalith idea, um, which isn't even idea. It's just like context that floats around in my head. Um, is like it should be easy for people to make things. It should be easy for people to uh, run things. Um, you should be able to make things um, and solve problems for everybody, but not have to worry about making it a company. Like that's the auto-sustainable model stuff. Um, and a lot of that involves so- solving these uh, systemic, you know, internal service uh, system problems. Um, because we need better software in order to, to do that and pieces to build a system that could could do that. You know, do we are we gonna build that system? Are we gonna rebuild you know, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. All I know is that that's the direction that I wanna go and that's kind of what Megalith is about and it's gonna be very hard to describe for a while. Yeah, sounds very interesting. Um, so where can people go if they're listening to the podcast uh, to, to sign up to hear more about this? Um, I'm going to put, uh, I, I think a lot of people that are already in the podcast are, are listening to, are, are on the mailing list and that's kind of my main, like, right, so how do I get on the mailing list? Um, this is the point where you plug a, a the URL. URL <laughs> but I usually have the URL like in the video on the blog post, I have the URL. All right. Um, so we'll have it in the description in the feed. Yeah. Um, so, so that's where updates are going and, um, 
and, and I, I feel bad too, just because a lot of people are expecting a good answer there. So I'm actually been, I've been hesitant to say things on there just because every time I do, people are like, I still don't know what it is. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I know, I know. It's early days. It's very early days for, for Megalith as a public facing concept. Yeah. So in, in the meantime, like I think the things that people can actually help out with in the sh- short, uh, near term are, um, uh, I mean, I, I need to, there are a couple of things I need to do housekeeping things on the projects that I have. I need to put out a call for maintainers. I need help maintaining these projects. Um, and then also, uh, right now I don't have, like, I'm really focusing on trying to do this full time as opposed to doing contract work that, you know, does, that pays super well. Um, you know, what Glider Labs had been doing for the past year pays super well and lets me use these tools, but doesn't develop the tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, valids, it validates them, but at this point they've been validated um, and helps find new problems and stuff. But like, it really takes away from actually maintaining and, and developing these tools. So I need help uh, from maintainers. And so I'll be putting out a call for that. And I'll probably, you know, I don't know how I'm going to position that on the megalith um, mailing list or whatever, but um, and then the other thing is a Patreon campaign because I think it, you know, it's a total experiment and a risk. Um, I've seen it work before. Like there have been some examples of, of where it's worked, where people, um, you know, have contributed an ongoing contribution. Um, and I can explain probably too how the plan to, is to make that work. Um, part of it involves like actually going out and talking to larger companies to do larger chunks so that the you know, smaller contributions that individuals provide is you know, not the only thing, stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, even kind of doing the megalith thing now is to you know, kind of get people interested uh, and give a little bit more context around a Patreon campaign. Um, but the Patreon campaign will definitely not talk about megalith. Right. It'll be fun, Jeff Lindsay, to make Jeff Lindsay projects. Yeah, and and so it's based on like basically my cost of living, which I'm trying to keep very low, living in Austin and, and moving to a cheaper place, um, and uh, and then anything above a certain amount will go into Glider Labs, and then that has its own sort of sustainable funding model as t- in terms of like open source uh, development stuff. So I can get into all of that stuff at some point as well, but. Um, my biggest concern first was just explaining megalith, but maybe it's just a, uh, you know, I, I have a work, I have a working definition, and just go on from there. Um, and the people that are going to be part of that journey are going to self-select, you know, and there are going to be people yep. that are like, I don't understand it, I'm not going to. Well, in a year from now, it may be something yeah. far more concrete yeah. and far more polished, and some people will have been working on it from the beginning. Uh, or pitching in, and then it'll become more and more fleshed out, and then it'll it'll answer those people. Um, and then I think that's just that's just the process, and some people aren't ready for that. Yeah. Um, I thought Mozilla has this problem a lot too. I've seen where they announce they they struggle on when to announce things because uh, they'll put out they'll put out uh, artist mockups of potential UIs, and people get angry at them yeah. like, oh, you took away the back button, I hate you. And it's like this is literally a PSD file that one person made once. I mean, yeah, and I've seen that too with Docker. Um, Solomon would, and he learned his lesson. He used to do announcements, major announcements at like DockerCon of like an experimental project that they're doing. But he like basically shares it as if it's a finished product, 
Um, and so that, you know, the expectations there, I feel like I've probably already failed in terms of megalith because I feel like somehow I've already set up expectations of it being like a, you know, clearly defined thing, but I don't know. So, um, yeah, I guess thanks everybody for, for listening, giving feedback and helping with this, uh, conversation. Uh, I'm going to keep sending updates to the list when there are other things like this. I might do, um, some other kind of like, um, uh, Google Hangouts or something like that. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'd love to see some more idealized design with with a with non-Austin community yeah, participation. Yeah, um, but then also uh, probably documenting a lot of what the next steps are, so people can kind of see what that is and, and help right. out and visibility into the near term right. process. Yeah. Um, well, thanks thanks for tuning in and listening live, and thanks for listening to the podcast. This has been Systems Live. <laughs>